Thank you, Tim Carey. That was a school song for a graduate school that I used to teach at. Really love that song. Full of rich meaning. This morning, good morning, we are in our continuing uh, series, the uh, sobering sayings of Jesus. I wanted to let you know, though, that um, although there are lots of sayings of Jesus, I don't know that they're all that as uh, sobering, and uh, I'm not going to go on perpetually in this series, so uh, I wanted you to know that I'll probably move uh, into the I am sayings of Jesus, and then, then we'll go on to the epistle of James after that. So, um, But our saying this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 23. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And every saying has a setting. It's so important to understand language, to understand words in their context, uh, to gain insight into the meaning from the setting. And so our first setting is the chapter of chapter 4. This setting is uh, Jesus' conversation with, with a woman, uh, a woman of Samaritan uh, heritage. And then the larger context of the saying is the Gospel of John and the writings of John. How does John use the words truth and spirit? So we be, we'll be looking at that, thinking about that this morning. The setting, the immediate setting, is a, a mini-debate uh, the woman has brought up a pretty controversial subject, the subject of worship and what's true worship and who's right, you know, who's doing it right. Are those guys over there doing, are those guys across town doing it right? Like we're the worship police, I suppose. But anyway, she brings up the topic and she puts it to Jesus. And uh, Jesus says something that's pretty important in response. Uh, just two things I want to highlight, and then we'll read it ourselves. Uh, he says, first of all, uh, there's their way and their way, but there's a third way. There's a new way. There's a greater way. There's a preferred way. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, the Father is seeking worshipers, who worship in spirit and truth. He's seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. In fact, Jesus says, you must worship in spirit and truth. So that's a very, very strong statement, must. That means you have to if you're to worship in spirit and truth and to worship the Father, which in the context we know is the way Jesus refers to God. God is not some abstract beyond understanding. He is intimate 
to Jesus' knowledge, and now he brings that intimacy to our perspective on worship. We are to worship. We must worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's what the Father, he says, is seeking. So let's read it in context. I'd like to begin at verse 19. Because I think verse 19, well, it makes me smile. Let me set it up real quick. Uh, Jesus uh, stops at a well for water. It happens to be Jacob's well. It's, it's in Samaria, the region of Samaria. And a lot of times, most people go around that region. They don't go through it. And Jesus stops at a well, and it's midday. And a woman comes to the well by herself. Normally, women would come together earlier in the day or later in the day, the cool of the day, not in the midday. She comes alone. And his disciples have gone off to a local village to rustle up some grub. They don't, didn't use the word grub, but it's kind of a remote area, so grub sounded important or relevant. But anyway, to get some food. And Jesus and this woman have this conversation. Jesus turns to her and uh, after a greeting says, could you draw me a glass of water? I'm kind of thirsty. And she says, no problem. So while she's drawing the water, Jesus says, you know, if you drank the water that I have to give you, you wouldn't need that, that water. I've got living, I've got living water to give you. And just so you know, not just in the Bible, but in the Mediterranean world, not only in Palestine or what we would call the area of the Bible land, but in other areas within the Mediterranean, living water was running water. So if you want living water, then you are looking at a something that's moving, something that's running, not something that's standing still. And Jesus, she thinks that Jesus is talking about that kind of water, running water. And he says, I've got living water. And he's talking about something greater than the preferred water. And so she says, if you'd give me that, I wouldn't have to come here anymore. I'd like it if you'd give me that living water. And Jesus says, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have one. I hope that doesn't disqualify me. He says, that you've said is right, because he says, you have not only do not have a husband, but you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. And uh, that's a little too close to comfort for her. And so she says, hmm, you must be a prophet. I like that. That makes me smile, you know. Okay, you've told me a little about my life. You must be a prophet. So since you're a prophet... How about this? You know, I've always been bugged about worship. In fact, our people and your people are always fighting over worship. You say it's 
in that mount on the Mount Zion. It's in Jerusalem that's true to worship. And I say, uh, our people say, uh, it's on this mountain. So tell me, what's right? Okay? That's where we, look, that's where we pick up, verse 20. Everyone who does, excuse me, I was looking on the wrong page. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So he doesn't say, sorry, uh, you can't worship because you're Samaritans, or you're worshiping on the wrong mountain, or you have to be Jewish and worship on Zion in Jerusalem. He didn't say any of that. He doesn't make that an issue. He didn't say, oh, well, you're, you're out. I'm sorry, you were born wrong. In fact, he says something that I think is quite striking. He says, uh, uh, you, will, you will, so he's including her, you will worship the Father. And he calls God Father. And then he says, uh, God, my dear lady, is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So, in effect, she says, okay, we're, we're at a standoff. This is getting nowhere. When the Messiah comes, he'll settle this. Let's just, uh, let's table this until the Messiah gets here. I'm not going to argue with you. When the Messiah comes, he can straighten this out and tell us all about true worship. I'll listen to the Messiah. <laughs> thinking that she can turn around and walk away because uh, the Messiah isn't coming or isn't coming anytime soon. And Jesus, at that moment, imagine the electricity. Jesus said, uh, he's here, and I am he. And right at that time, the disciples show up. <laughs> Just at that moment, the moment... <laughs> The moment that really counts, the disciples come hey, yelling and probably talking too loud and slapping each other's backs. And, hey, what's going on in here? What's that woman doing here? Breaks the whole mood. But it does teach us that worship matters. It matters to the Messiah. It mattered to those people, even though it was divisive. And one side of the debate thought they worshipped in the right way, and the other side of the debate thought they worshipped in the right way. And they were at a standoff. No one would give. Wait for the Messiah to come. Well, the Messiah is here. Wait no longer. And what I just told you is the case. It's not that way or the other way. It's a new way. And it's in spirit and truth It has to be in spirit and truth. It won't be true 
It won't be in the Spirit unless it's in spirit and truth, and that's what the Father is seeking. He's yearning for that. He's looking for that. He wants that from you. That's what worship is all about. The big question is, what's spirit and truth? Well, it won't help us to go to anyone but the Gospel of John. We have to know how John, in the Gospel, helps us to understand the use of spirit and truth and what spirit and truth signify, represent in the Gospel. I wish we had more time. Um, I did my Ph.D. dissertation in the Gospel of John. I encourage you to read the Gospel of John and listen to what you're learning as you read the entire Gospel about spirit and about truth. But if I may, I'll try to abbreviate. The truth in the Gospel of John, the truth in you must worship in spirit and truth is Jesus. The truth is Jesus Christ. Because in the Gospel of John, Jesus is sent by God. Jesus refers to God as the Father. His mission is to reveal God the Father to the world because God loves the world. He sent His Son because He loves the world. In the Gospel of John, Jesus never speaks for Himself, never speaks of His own accord or for His own advantage or benefit. Jesus never seeks His own glory. Jesus does not even come in His own name I'm quoting verses to you as I'm speaking to you. Jesus, in fact, says, if you believe in me, you believe not in me, but in the Father who sent me. Again and again and again and again and again. Read the Gospel of John and count the number of times Jesus grounds what he is saying, what he is thinking, what he is doing in the one who sent him. And it is because he is the representative of the Father to the world that Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That he can say, I and the Father are one. Because Jesus is totally devoted to revealing the Father. I hope that's very clear to you. What's also interesting is the way the gospel opens. The first 18 verses are like an introduction to the gospel of John. In fact, they're very important to you as a reader because after reading those 18 verses, you know something about Jesus that the other 
people that are mentioned that have conversations with Jesus, such as Nicodemus or the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, or other people within the gospel, those people do not know Jesus as well as you do from reading the first 18 verses. You have a perspective. You have an omniscient perspective. You have a divine perspective. And you can hear and detect the truth as Jesus speaks it in a way that somebody who has not read, read those first 18 verses can understand. And what does it say in the very beginning? It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says, he was with God in the beginning. But then where does it go? It continues to talk about he who was already in the beginning and was with God. He, who is this he that is called the Word or the Logos, a most significant philosophical world in the Mediterranean of that time and going back into the early philosophers. Who is he? Well, we're told in verse 3. He is the instrument of all creation. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. What more? Another layer is now added. In him, that him who made all things, and without him not one thing made was made. That him who is the Logos, who is with God and is God, that him, in him is life. What kind of life then? Just mere earthling life? No, how could it be mere earthling life? It's the source of all creation. It's the source of creation life. It's life that can't be squelched, can't grow old, can't be exhausted, can't be killed. It's life beyond life, over life, under life, in life, around life. It's eternal life. In him was life. And what does it mean that life was in him? He is the light of men. If you come in contact with your creator, he in whom there is life, do you think you just pass right by, overlook? Uh, Nothing new here. No, he's the light of men. He reveals. He illumines. And that light that is life shines in the darkness, verse 5. And the darkness cannot defeat it, cannot comprehend it, cannot overcome it. Verse 6, there was a man named John. He was sent from God. He came to bear witness to what? The light. The light coming into the world. And what becomes of that light? 
We're told in 11, 12, and 13, he came into his own. His own did not receive him. But to as many as received him, did he give the light that he brought into the world? Did he give the life, the life that was the light of men? He gave the authority. He gave the right. He gave the permission to become children of God. Only he has that right. Only he has that ability. Because as it goes on to say, this is not by human accomplishment. Not by human endeavor. But by the will of God. Well, where did that will come from? In sending him. Moses brought the law, we're told, in verse 17. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Because in verse 14, we're told, the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled, took up his abode right in the midst, not from a distance, not through smoke signals, not through another intermediary. No, he took up residence right in the midst of us. Grace and truth through him. He is greater than Moses. Greater than Moses. Greater than him who gave the law because he brings grace and truth. And where does that come from? What does it say in verse 14? It says, We beheld his glory. By the way, tabernacle is intentional on the part of John because he wants us to think, of how God took up his abode among the Israelites in the wilderness and led them by the cloud of pillar during the day and the pillar of light at night. And he spoke to Moses, and he communicated and mediated his presence through Moses. But he wants us to know now, one greater than Moses has tabernacled in our midst And then it says, we beheld his glory. That's a pretty powerful statement. What did we see when we beheld his glory? Glory as the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And if we knew our Bibles, we would immediately think of Moses Back in the Exodus, back when he's the mediator, back when he has face-to-face, so to speak, communication with God. And back in Exodus chapter 33, he says to God, he says, God, I want to see your face. Think about that. I want to see your face. 
I want to know you face to face. Can you imagine you're doing all this, but you feel some distance, and it's like a veil. Imagine someone you really cared about, but you had to talk through a wall, a thin wall of some kind. You would yearn for greater intimacy. He says, I want to see your glory. Well, obviously, glory must be pretty important, huh? Pretty significant to the essence, the nature, and the presence of a person. Or he wouldn't have asked to see his glory. It's like, if I could see your glory, I'll really know you. Show me your glory. And God says, okay, but I'm not going to let you see my face. I'll let you see my back. I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock to protect you. And so in chapter 34, Moses is put in the cleft of the rock to protect him against the raw presence of God. God passes by, but what does Moses see? What does Moses experience? What does Moses hear? It's in verse 6 of Exodus 34. Let me read it to you. The most important part is the climax, the last two words. The Lord passed before him, and this is what he heard. The Lord, the Lord. Well, that was God's personal name. I mean, Lord stands for what we vocalize as Yahweh, That's what he revealed to Moses when Moses says, who do I tell the Israelites when I show up? You know, God said, Moses, I want you to represent me to the people. He says, well, who do I tell them has sent me? Why should they listen to me? What are my credentials? And God says, I will be who I will be, or I am that I am, which is which is the first person of Yahweh. And then in verse 15, he says, tell them, He will be, or Yahweh. Does that make sense? If I was going to say he will be, that would be Yahweh in Hebrew. Tell them Yahweh. He will be has sent you. And God, of course, continues to reveal himself and add predicates to the meaning. Who is he? How will he be? He will be our warrior, as in Exodus 15, when they sing the song of Miriam on the other side of the sea after God has brought, brought them safely through. He's my warrior. He's my song. He and his name are worthy of each other. See? And they keep adding predicates, defining who God is. Because when, Jesus, when God first said, I am that I am, he was in a sect in effect, saying, Moses, you can't control me. Because they often, when they knew the name of a a deity, they felt that they could control the deity. He says, I am that I am. Well, who will I say, tell them, if they ask me, who who do you represent? Tell them Yahweh. God is winning his people by delivering them and bringing them out. That bell should alert you to that fact. Underscoring it. So when, when he says in 34.6, the Lord, the Lord, he is pronouncing, if you will, he is vocalizing his name. And then what? He adds layer and predicate upon his 
name, but not just a name, who he is, his glory, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That ending, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that's picked up by the Greek language of the New Testament in John chapter 1, verse 14. We beheld His glory. Listen. We beheld His glory. Glory as the one and only Son of the Father, abounding in grace and truth, or love and truth, love and faithfulness. They're all the same ideas. In the Old Testament, it's chesed ve'emeth, loyal love and faithfulness. Loyal love never runs out, never goes dry, right? That's the love of covenant. That's the love of covenant because it's not the kind of love that bails when the other person fails or betrays their end of the covenant. Faithful, not fickle. Dependable. His promise is His promise. He's unchanging. That's what they're saying of the Word that was with God. The Word that made all things and without whom nothing was made. Who is the life and the light of men. That one has taken up a boat in our presence. We beheld His glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, that's why Jesus says in chapter 14, verse 6, no one comes to the Father but by me. That's why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You just think about this. This is not just about exceptionalism. This is about Jesus revealing God the Father. What does it say in verse 18 of chapter 1? He has made him known. Verse 18 pictures the Word and God of verse 1 in intimate relationship on the bosom of, which is the way you speak of being very close in embrace. That one who is at the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. Can you worship if you don't know who you are worshiping? You can't. Can you receive from someone that you don't know you're receiving it? Can you depend on someone that you don't know? God has revealed himself. And again and again and again in the Gospel of John, it says, he sent him. Jesus constantly, over 44 times, 
Jesus refers to him who sent me, him who sent me. Because what Jesus says, he tells us in chapter 5, I do not do anything of my own will, only the will of the one who sent me. Everything that I tell you is his. You believe not in me, but you believe in him. In other words, we worship in spirit and truth, that is, through the revelation, through the knowledge of the Father that we have by virtue of his Son, Jesus Christ. Without him, we don't have the knowledge, the truth. We don't know God's heart. We can't trust him, and we can't depend upon his love. And the Spirit, to worship in spirit and truth, the Spirit is the Holy Spirit. Earlier in verse 14, in talking to the woman at the well, he says, I'm going to give you living water. She says, man, I'd like to have that. I wouldn't have to come here all the time. And he, she's on the, on the cusp of receiving that when she, he brings up her husband and all, everything falls apart. But the key that you need to appreciate is that the living water that he offers is not just running water. In chapter 7, at the Feast of Tabernacles, the water feast, tabernacles or tents or shelters or huts, every year to this day, it's one of the three great festivals of the Jewish people because it celebrates their wilderness wandering when God watched over and cared for them in the wilderness. And they actually build these temporary huts to remember And in that process, there is a water ceremony. And in the midst of that water ceremony, which was so vital, I mean, what from what did the people drink? The rock. Even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 draws our attention to that. Jesus draws attention to it in the actual feast and in that chapter, chapter, uh, God, the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, he says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. As the Scripture says, from within him, referring to Jesus, will flow rivers of living water. And in the very next verse, John tells us Jesus was speaking of the coming Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit that is poured out, that is the living water of this new life, eternal life. It's equivalent to it. And by the way, the Spirit is going to raise our dead bodies to newness of life. He's the resurrection power. That resurrection power dwells within your life. But in the Gospel of John, Jesus calls him our counselor, our aid, our helper, the paraclete. And he also calls him what? The Spirit of truth. And why? Because the Spirit helps us to know Jesus and to know the Father. The Spirit, Jesus says, will glorify me. 
The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will bear witness to me. Why is that important? Because Jesus enables us to comprehend and understand the Father. Our worship is triune because our God is triune, a trinity. In chapter, uh, let me give you a couple of verses for you who would like to look up some of those things. Chapter 15, verse 26. Chapter 16, verses 13, 14, and 15. Chapter 14, verses 17, 18, 19, and 20. And verse 26 of that chapter. In fact, Jesus says, The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said. Because everything I have said is from the Father who sent me, in whose purpose I have come, whose heart I represent, whose compassion I express, whose forgiveness I enable, and more. Worship that the Father desires is in spirit and truth, must be. But this is a person spoken to a person in great need, and that's what we can't lose sight of. This woman, when he says, go get your husband, she says, I don't, I don't, that, that's a word game. She was playing a word game. Go get your husband. I'm sorry, I'm not married. Anybody else would have said, oh, okay, guess you can't get your husband. Jesus sees through that. He says, Don't play games with me. You've had five husbands, and the man that you're with now is not your husband. This isn't about her sinfulness. This is about her broken life. If you've had five husbands, or you've had five wives, you've got relationship problems. I mean, can you just for a moment, in a quick moment, feel what it's like to be at the end of five broken relationships and the one that you're with? (laughs) I'm not getting married this time around. And why she comes to the well alone? She's a broken woman. She's hiding it. He says, I'm giving you living water. I'd like that. Go get your husband. E. Of course, nobody came with you to the well. In fact, you're coming at the oddest of hours. You're shopping at midnight, as it were. And she says, okay, let's change the subject. And then she says, look, we can't agree. Let's wait for the Messiah. And Jesus says, I am the Messiah. And you know what? It's as a result of that that she begins to act. And she goes into the village and she says, Come, I've met a man who is the Messiah, who knows all about me, and he's talking about living water. He's talking about salvation. She tries to hide. There's something for us to learn in this. Something we can learn about ourselves, about worship. And there's something here that we can learn about the way we view worship. Because sometimes we'd rather 
talk about worship or complain about worship than actually worship. She says, we'll wait for the Messiah. And Jesus says, well, it just so happens the Messiah is here. Have you come to the well to get running water or living water? Jesus says to worship, we must worship in spirit and truth. To do that, we have to be present, not perfect. We have to be present, not perfect. The most important thing we need to understand, and I'm just going to have to close with this, we live in a, a world of increased distraction. Everybody needs to be on some kind of medication because we all have ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder. And if it isn't an attention deficit, it's an attention diversion. We're all trying to run from who we really are, from our brokenness, from our needs. We're looking to other authorities to settle the controversies that we ourselves cannot settle and the divides between us. But we'll never do any of it if we don't put our eyes on Jesus Christ and realize that we can know the Father, can depend on the Father, can receive the Father, can praise the Father, can know the Father through Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, the Spirit, which informs us not only of Him and brings His thoughts to mind, but works His will in our lives. We don't have to have it all figured out. We have to let Him take over. We need to give Him the space. We need to give Him the hearing. We have to set our eyes on Him. We can't expect God to kick the door of your heart down to get your attention. He has to at least be important enough for you to say, I'm going to make space in my life for you. No more hiding, no more games, no more excuses. I'm going to make space in my life for you because I know you. That means I don't have to be perfect. I just need to be present. God's seeking my worship. Worship through Jesus Christ and His Spirit who reveals to me everything I need, who equips me with everything I need to be in the moment and to worship, to set it all aside and focus on Him. How many times have you been singing a song and you're thinking, I'm not worthy because you remember a sin Maybe it was a fight on the way to church or something that you did during the week and that song or that lyric or that idea caused you to feel very unworthy. And what happens when you feel that way? You hide, don't you? You play games. Maybe you start picking on somebody else. Start grumbling. You know what? That's the tool of the enemy, fear. Fear. 
It all goes back to fear. Fear of yesterday, fear of tomorrow, fear of God. His love casts out all fear so that we can be honest with him and let him do his work within us when we worship. That we can truly sing those songs and know that it's not about being perfect, it's about being present. And we can be present. Right now, I can worship him with a good heart, a whole heart, a committed heart. I may not be all I should be, and I may not be all that I want to become for him, or even what he wants me to become. But I have this moment, and I can give him my all. I can give him my heart. I can give him my mind. I can give him my faith, which were the three points I didn't put up there. To be in the present, use your heart, use your head, and use your faith. It's the faith that has the, like in the Wizard of Oz, the tin man. The scarecrow. And the lion who was a coward. They all went to Oz because they hoped to get a heart, to get a brain, to get that courage. That's all we need to invest in the present when we meet God in worship. Use our intellect and realize Jesus has revealed him. Use our heart. Yeah, our emotion. Let it go into the heart. That's where the spirit really takes over, manifests himself. And in faith, courage. The faith to take it out into the real world Take it. Live it. That love, that compassion, that forgiveness, that purity, all the things that Jesus calls us to do when he calls us to follow him. And we can know that we're really worshiping the Father who seeks us to worship in spirit and truth. Will you stand with me? Now pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son. And thank you for your Spirit who helps us even to express uh, and uh, pursue, achieve your will when we pray. Help us to be aware of your presence. Through your spirit, help us to be aware of what you're seeking us to be in Jesus Christ, that we might indeed be more like you and know you more. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name and all of God's people said, God bless you.